0: Good morning again. If you brought your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to 1 John 4. We're going to be looking at a very important topic. I've titled the sermon, The Love of God. And that's a really broad topic that I could probably, you could probably go on for days on and not reach all of it. When I say the word love, what comes to mind? What do you think of when someone says love? What does it mean to love someone? The world has a lot of different definitions of love. Some people think that love is something that kind of washes over you. It's a feeling. And all of a sudden you get this feeling and you just know, I'm in love. Some people think love is like a swimming pool. You're just kind of walking along and all of a sudden you fall in. And now you're in love. It must be an above ground swimming pool because then they say you can fall out of love. So others say that love is merely something that you do. It's not what you feel, it's just what you do. And then others have a more mystical view, that love is the result of a chubby little angel shooting you with an arrow. See, the problem with defining love is the word in English can mean all sorts of things. And we can use love to talk about our spouse, and we can use love to talk about what we ate for dinner. It just has a wide range of meanings, and it encompasses so much. And so it's not clear when someone says love what they actually mean when they say it. Fortunately, when God wrote the New Testament, he wrote it in Greek. And Greek is a little bit more definitive on what it means by love. And in fact, there are four Greek words that can refer to love. And since this is not a Greek class, we're not going to go through all of them. But I do want to point out just two of those words. Because I think these two words can help us. The first one, you've heard both of these. The first one, phileo, or philos, or philia, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. And that's what this word refers to. It refers to brotherly affection. This is love that is motivated by the pleasure you find in another person. I see you and there's something about you that I just really like. And it attracts my love and my affection for you. There's something about you that's appealing. And how I love you for it. There's another word. You've heard of this one too. Agapao or agape. In secular Greek, the term was used in a similar way to phileo. And it referred to the love of a brother. It referred to brotherly affection. It was used to describe the affection that came from seeing the value in another person and coming to prize them. You see their worthiness, you might say. One commentator said, "Is the love that recognizes the worthiness of the object loved. And once again, at least in secular Greek, this is looking at another person and seeing something in them and saying, I love that in that person. Love is based on what you see in another person. And so these two terms in the secular world were used synonymously. They were used to mean the same thing. Love derived from your worthiness. But that is not true when you get to the New Testament. That is not true. The New Testament not only uses agape completely differently, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament authors invest new meaning into this term agape. And in fact, it's so completely unique that Paul devotes an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, to describing and explaining how agape love behaves and acts, and giving you the characteristics of this kind of love. And there he only uses one word for love, agape. The whole chapter's on it. Dr. Nicholas Ellen gives a really good definition. I've kind of adapted it. I want you to just hear how this word can be defined. Agape love unconditionally seeks the highest good of others. Unconditionally. It doesn't matter what you've done. I want to seek the best for you, the highest good for you. Agape love is given with no strings attached. How many of you have met someone who, they'll love you, but it's going to cost you? Not agape love. Agape is concerned with how we act, not how we feel. We don't say, well, I don't feel like I love you. No, it's how I act towards you. Agape love responds to the condition of others, not their attractiveness. It responds to their condition, not their attractiveness. Finally, agape is motivated by the desire to benefit others rather than to satisfy self. That's a really good summary of, the, of what it means to have agape love. Unconditionally seeks the highest good of others. It's given with no strings attached. It's focused on how we act, not how we feel. It responds to the condition of others, not their attractiveness. And it's motivated by the desire to benefit others rather than to satisfy self. Isn't that the kind of love you want to receive from others? Perhaps the one thing that separates agape love from all others in the New Testament is how John uses it here in 1 John 4. Look at 1 John 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is agape. 1 John 4, verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love of which God has in us. God is love. God is agape. John is not describing what God does. He's not describing what God possesses. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he identifies agape love as a divine attribute. Agape love describes the very nature of God Himself. You might say, This is divine love. This is how God loves. Or if I use a sermon title, This is the love of God. It's agape love. And this morning, I want to show you three unique facts about the love of God. And it's unique in the sense that no other love is described this way. The first fact, The love of God is a gift given. The love of God is a gift given. In the world, as I said, love is the result of what we like in the other person. Love is simply a response to what I see in you. I see something of value in a person, something I like or I appreciate, I see a characteristic or a quality that I think is noble and appealing, and I respond to that quality or that attribute with love and affection. Why? Because that person provides something to me that I want, that I like. And this is true of every form of human love. It is a response. That does not describe agape love, the love of God. The love of God was given to you. It was given to you as a gift. You cannot work to achieve it. You cannot go search it out like gold. It cannot be purchased or procured through a monetary transaction. It is not earned or merited or deserved. It is not based on your worthiness. The love of God is given as a gift. You can say it this way. The love of God is all of grace. It's all of grace. And this, in reality, is the only way God could ever love you. It's the only way that God could ever love me. Because we have to think about what the Bible says about the person who is outside of Christ. Does the Bible say that outside of Christ, that there is something attractive about you? That there's something worthy about you? There is something in you that would make God say, wow, you're such an amazing person? That you're worthy of being loved by him? Psalm 14, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 1 Kings 8:46, there is no man who does not sin. The reality is, in and of ourselves, we are sinners. And God hates all sin. Psalm 5, he says he hates those who do sin. He separates from them. And it's not just that man sins. It's that in man's sinful state, he hates God. Romans 8, verse 7, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Outside of Christ, you were not loving towards God, you were hating God. You hated God, you were not able, nor were you willing to submit yourself to him. You had no ability to do anything for God that would be pleasing to Him. Romans 8, verse 8, And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. If God were to love as man loves, if God were to use the same standard that we use to love others, then God would never have loved you and I. And yet, this is a verse you all know, John three sixteen. For God so loved, agape, or the verb form, agapao, loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. God loved you with agape love. When you were worthless, when there was nothing attractive about you, when there was nothing in you deserving of love, Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for you by sending his son and he displayed his love for you long before you ever did anything deserving of it. Long before you ever displayed any love for him. He showed his love for you in the midst of your hatred for him. When you despised him, he loved you. Before you ever repented, before you ever truly acknowledged his presence, he loved you with the highest, purest love imaginable, with agape love. And he focused on giving you the greatest good. What is the greatest good God could give you? His Son. First John, you're already there. First John, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is no way for you to experience the love of God outside of Christ. There is no way for you to say that God loves me while you are rejecting his son because his son was the manifestation, the demonstration of his love for you. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject the love of God. 1 John 4, verse 19, We love because he first loved us. God is the source of agape love. All true love comes from God, and you are able to love only because God has loved you first. We have been the recipients of his love. And again, his love was not in response to you. It was not in response to your worthiness or your love for him. You and I hated him. But he loved us. God has given you agape love. And not only did he give this to you when you were saved, but he's still giving it to you. He's still loving you. In the midst of your sin, despite your faults, despite your backsliding, in the face of your continued rebellion at times, despite all the times where you doubt and don't trust him, his love for you doesn't change. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't dwindle away. It isn't affected. Isn't this a wonderful God that you serve? We love to bask in the glory of, of God's love for us. We love to sit here and think about How wonderful it is that God has loved us through grace, and it was not something that we have earned. It was given to us as a gift. We say, amen, praise the Lord. Let's sing some songs. I wonder, God loves you by grace. God shows you love by grace. How many times do people in your life have to earn your love? How many times do we withhold love from others? And we tell them, no, 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 it's not by grace, it's by works. If you want me to love you, if you want me to be nice to you, if you want my attention and my affection, you better live up to my standard. You better start performing the way I want you to. I think if we're honest, every single person here has done that. Those who have been loved, those who have received the love of God, should be loving. You should be giving what you have received. Those who have received mercy should be merciful. Those who have been forgiven should be forgiving. And those who have been loved should be loving in the same way that they have been loved. Turn over to Romans 5. We're just going to look at one verse here. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been loved by God, and now the love of God, that agape love, now resides in you. It dwells in you. Romans 5, verse 5, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice, the love of God, the agape of God, was poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you were first converted, when you, for the first time, experienced the love of God in a real and tangible way, you were filled with agape love. You were filled with the love of God. Now, even if you don't remember the exact day that you were converted, maybe you know the time period. Think back to that time period. When you think back on it, do you see a love and a passion for Christ? Do you remember the love that you had for the word of God? Do you remember how you were so eager just to love him a little bit more? And you were so willing, I'll give up any sin, I'll cut off whatever I need to, I just want to love him some more. The love of God was poured out into your heart. That's what happens in the life of a person whose heart is filled with the love of God. What fills the heart comes out. In fact, in Galatians 5, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. You you remember the list? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. If you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit will be producing fruit, and the first fruit it produces is love. Not as the world loves. Not as sinner's love, but the fruit is agape. It's the love of God being poured out of your heart through the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, then you should be loving others as you have been loved. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the first fact about the love of God. It is a gift given. It was given to you by grace. It brings us to the second fact about the love of God. The love of God is commanded. This is in Matthew 22. If you'll turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, Jesus gives us command that you are to love. And he again uses the same word, agape. And just for context, we're going to start in Matthew 22, verse 35. I just want to hear, let you hear what comes right before it. Verse 35, And one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him, that would be Jesus, a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, understand, this is not a genuine question. He's not looking for real information here. This is a test. He's trying to find a way to trick Jesus and, and trap him. The rabbis believed that all of the law was important. But then they tried to rank each commandment and put some commandments as being more important than others. And so they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell us which is the greatest commandment. And where's the trick in that? The trick is no one's going to agree with them, and now they all have something they can go after them on. Verse 37, Jesus answered, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a quote right out of Deuteronomy 6, 5. That's where you find the Shema, which is what the Jews would repeat every single day. This was a command the Jews would have known very well. And notice the command here. You shall love the Lord. You shall agapao. You should give to the Lord agape love. The same love that you have received from God, you are now commanded to return back to him. The love that has been poured out in your hearts, that should be filling your heart, should be coming out of your heart to God. What does that look like? That looks like you you have a self-sacrificing love. Your love for God causes you to sacrifice your will and your wants and your desires for his glory. You are to love him unconditionally, regardless of what he has done. And I know at that point, some people say, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? Have you ever met someone? who was going through a really difficult time. They were truly suffering. You knew they were suffering. And they were mad about it. And they said to you, I can't worship God right now. I can't give thanks. I can't sing hymns right now. Look what he's doing to me. I don't deserve this. See, they think that their love for God is merely a reward for God doing what they want. It's not agape love. You are commanded to love God as God loves you, no matter what He does. Unconditionally. And you are to show that agape love back to Him. And how are you to do that? Verse 22 again. With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Now, he gives us three words here, heart, soul, and mind, and Greek philosophers have spent a lot of time distinguishing these three things and how they function differently in the soul, and we're not going to go into that today. Here's what I want you to notice. Notice the repetition. When he repeats words, it's important. Verse 22, you are to love God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all all of your mind. Three times he repeats all. Let me say it another way. You are to love God with every fiber, every ounce, every molecule of your being. Every corner of your soul, every crevice of the heart is to be engaged in the act of loving God. There should be no part of your existence at any time that fails to love God. You are to love him just as he has loved you. You are to take the love of God that he has given to you, and you are to return that back to him. And you are to do that perfectly all day, every day, in every moment of every day with all of your being. Verse 38. This is the great and foremost commandment. Scribes, you you guys want to try to earn your salvation by keeping the law? Here's the number one law of God. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and never fail to do that. In fact, he actually repeats the same command in Mark 12, 33, and the scribe affirms him in that. And the scribe says, to love God in this way is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's more important for you to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, than for you to go through a million religious experiences and a whole bunch of rituals and sacrifice all the goats and the bulls. You need to love God. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love and the superiority of love. And he says, if I can speak with the tongues of angels, another way of saying, if I had an angelic voice and I was the greatest orator in the world, but I did not have love. I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm a three-year-old banging on a drum. If I give all of my possessions to the poor and I sacrifice all of my wealth, it profits me nothing if I have no love. Jesus says the number one commandment you have is to love God. That is the great and foremost commandment. And then he gives them a second commandment. They only ask for one, verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not only are you commanded to love God with every ounce of your being, you are commanded to love others as yourself. And again, he uses the same word agape. The same agape love that God has poured into your heart, that is the love that you are to manifest and display to others and to give to others. You are to love others as yourself. And this is where some people in the world today will say, well, I can't love others until I learn how to love myself. That's what the world teaches. That's what psychology today teaches. Um, The Bible says your greatest problem is that you love yourself too much. And we know that you love yourself and you know that I love myself. You know how you know that? Because how many of you did this morning woke up on a bed of nails You mean you all have a nice comfy mattress and a soft pillow and some blankets? How many of you sleep in wool at night? Anybody? You woke up this morning, you got out of your comfy bed, you went and took a hot shower. You spent a lot of time cleaning yourself up, brushing your teeth, doing your hair. Then you went and fixed yourself a nice meal. You didn't go and get the dog food and serve that to yourself. You went and fixed yourself a nice breakfast that's enjoyable. You serve yourself the best foods you can get. You pamper and coddle every one of your physical needs. You love yourself a lot. You're willing to sacrifice a lot for your comfort and for your desires. God says you are to love others in the same way. Love others the way you love yourself. Love them the way that God has loved you, with the same love that God has given to you. A love that seeks their highest good. A love that is selfless, that is sacrificial. A love that's not conditioned upon their performance and their attractiveness. It's a love that is focused on their well-being, not their worthiness. You are to share with your neighbor the love that you have received from God. That agape love. Look at verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 40. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets. That is, every command ever given by God hangs on these two commands. The word hang here is referring to something like a nail. If you take a nail and you hang a picture up on the wall with it, what happens if you pull the nail out? Picture falls. The law of God is like a nail is like a picture on the wall. And what hangs it there is the nail of love. And if you pull the nail out, the whole thing collapses and shatters. You remove the nail of love, you've lost the commands. In Romans 13, he actually explains how this is done. If you want to go there, it's Romans 13, 8 through 10. How in the world does the entire law depend upon this command to love? How can we make sense of that? It's because any and every violation of God's law, God's command, is ultimately a violation of these two commands. Any sin you commit is ultimately a violation of the command to love. Last week we talked about anger and murder of the heart. I'll give you an example. If you murder someone, is that an act of love? No, that's an act of hate. You hate your brother if you murder them. But if you murder your brother, your brother is made in the image of God. And to attack someone made in the image of God is to attack the image bearer, it is to attack God himself. To murder your neighbor is to be unloving to God. It is to show hatred to God. Look at Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, It is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The root cause of every sin you have ever committed, the root cause is a lack of love. If I'm willing to lie to you, it's because I don't actually love you as God loves if I'm willing to lie and break God's commandment so I can get something I want, it's because I don't love God the way I should love Him. We sin because we are not loving God. We are not obeying this commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. Let's go back over to 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 17. I'm going to start in verse 17, but we're going to focus on verse 18. 1 John 4, verse 17, by this, Love has been perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Look in verse 18, you notice where he says, perfect love. Love here is agape, that's the love of God that has been poured out in your heart. Perfect here refers to being matured or complete. He's not saying that the love that God has given you is somehow deficient. He's, or it's not even possible for that. His point is that we are not utilizing and appropriating that love correctly. Uh, Rich Thompson, in his book, The Heart of Man and the Mental Disorders, uh, gives some very helpful insight on this. Here's what he said. What is meant, though, is that the believer needs maturity in God's love. Positionally, he has love. Practically, he needs to appropriate God's love in a moment-by-moment way daily. That is maturity. A consistency in being filled with God's love and consistency in having God's love pouring through his life. Now, that might be a little hard to follow. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're a believer, you have been given faith. You have faith, and the faith that God has given you is perfect. It's perfect the way it is. You have a supernatural ability to trust the promises of Christ for salvation, and yet you are not perfect in your faith, are you? You are not perfect in your trust of God. How do we know that? Because there are still times you doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. There are still times you question if you're saved. There are still times where you worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, even though God says He controls tomorrow and you shouldn't worry. The faith that God supplies is not deficient, but you need to grow in your exercise of your faith. To have perfect love is to have love that is matured, that you exercise it effectively. Every time I sin, My fundamental problem is a lack of love for God. If I'm sinning, it is evidence that I am in that moment not loving God as I should be. I'm not loving him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my my mind. My love is not perfect. My love is not mature. Because in order to sin, I have to love me more than God, or I have to love something in the world more than God. The commentator John Stott said, John is not suggesting that any Christian's love could in this life be flawlessly perfect, but rather developed and mature, here it is, set fixedly upon God. Mature love is when I've taken the love of my heart and it's fixed solely on God and nothing else. When I sin, I'm not doing that. I'm loving myself, I'm loving the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, I'm loving the approval of man, comfort, respect, fame, prosperity, pleasure, whatever it is, I'm loving something other than God in that moment. When you sin, you are not following the first and the great commandment to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now that's important that you understand that because when that happens, when you sin, what comes next? Your conscience which is a God-given mechanism of your soul that warns you that you're in trouble, your conscience starts sending alarm bells and you start feeling guilty. Guilt, as we saw last week, is liability to punishment. Your conscience begins to tell you you violated God's law and now you deserve to be punished by God. And when you recognize that you're guilty and you recognize that you deserve to be punished, you know what comes next? Fear. Lots of fear. It's fear of judgment. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were in the garden. The snake tempts Eve. Adam and Eve both eat. And then it says that God was walking in the cool of the garden. And the text seems to indicate that's just what he was doing at the time. That was normal for them to commune with God daily. And they did so without shame. It says they had no shame. And yet, when they sinned, and God was walking in the cool of the garden, did they run to God and say, oh, we're so glad you're here. Genesis 3.10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. His conscience told him, you are liable for punishment. God should judge you and bring punishment upon you. And in fear, he runs from God. When your love is matured, when you're loving as as you ought to love God, your conscience will not be sounding alarm bells on you. You're not going to have a sense of guilt, and therefore you will not have the fear. Look at verse 18 again. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, matured love, casts out fear because fear involves punishment. You can't be fearful of God's punishment and be loving God with all of your heart at the same time. The two are complete opposites. That's actually good news, by the way. Because that means right now, this morning, if you are struggling with fear, fear of punishment, guilt over sin, The solution is not for you to go home and work real hard. The solution is not for you to give it some time before you go back to the Bible. That's not the solution that's running away. The solution is for you to go back to Christ and ask for forgiveness for your unloving attitude toward God and be cleansed again. And then you will have the love of God again and you can love Him and you will not have the fear. Okay. That's nice and all. How? How? do I have mature love? How can I mature in my love? How do I appropriate the love of God every day? That brings us to the third and the final fact about the love of God. The love of God is the goal. This is over in 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, we'll be looking at verse 5. When I was first saved, maybe some of you will understand this. I came out of Roman Catholicism, I get saved. And I'd sin, and I would think that the thing I needed to do was to pursue righteousness and holiness. And that was my goal. I just want to be righteous. I want to be holy. And I was pursuing it with everything I had. And I was miserable. Because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know if you're pursuing the goal of righteousness and holiness you're going to fail at that quite a bit. Because my standard was higher than what I could do in my own strength. Some of you are doing that this morning. You're pursuing holiness and righteousness, and your eyes are firmly fixed on that goal. Let me ask you a question. If your eyes are firmly fixed on the goal of righteousness, where is Jesus in that equation? He's there. I'll tell you where he is. He's the means to your end. He's the tool that you're going to use to get what you want. Jesus is not merely the means of righteousness. He is the goal. He is the end. In 1 Timothy 1, I want you to see this. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart. Love here is agape. The goal here is to have the love of God. Goal is the Greek word telos. It refers to the The goal, the final end, the ultimate purpose, it refers to the final destination. Paul says the goal, the telos of our commands. Commands here would refer to all Christian teaching. The goal of all teaching, preaching, Bible study, church services, instruction, biblical counseling, discipleship. The goal of all of that is one thing, love. There's our word again, agape. Agape the goal of all the instructions of God, the goal of every aspect of the Christian life is that you would manifest the love of God, that you would love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That you would fix your heart on loving him. And yes, that includes loving your neighbor as well. Because if you're loving God, you will love your neighbor. That you would be perfected in your love. That you would be mature in love. That you would seek to love him more and more and more every single day, every moment of the day, your goal is, Lord, I just want to love you more. Now, to be sure, I'm not talking about adding an activity to your life. I'm not talking about changing all the little things you're doing. I'm talking about a paradigm shift where I go from fixating on righteousness and holiness, which is the fruit of a relationship with God, to focus on loving God and being in right relationship with Him and loving Him with all of my heart. That means when I go to read the Word of God, my goal is not merely to finish my Bible reading plan. My goal is not to check a box. My goal is not just so I can have more facts for when I go to church. My goal is to learn about a person that I love. And I'm going to his word so I can love him more. You come to Bible studies and equipment classes not so that you can know more about the Bible. Not so you can know more about apologetics and evangelism and all that other stuff. You come to those classes so that you can love God more. Growing in your knowledge is just an ancillary benefit. The ultimate goal is that you would love God. That the love he has poured into your heart would come out in every decision, every thought, every attitude, every word and every deed. So how does that happen? How do I mature in my love? First Timothy one, verse five, the goal of our command is love from a pure heart. Notice the preposition "from." It actually modifies the three things that follow. So you could translate it this way. The goal of our command is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from an un hypocritical faith. See that? That is to say, those three things are the channels through which God sends his love. Those are the channels of love out of your heart. Love first comes from or comes out of a pure heart. If you want to manifest the love of God, you need a pure heart. You cannot love God with an impure heart. That means the love of God, to grow in your love for God, is your primary goal in your sanctification. My goal is not to be righteous. My goal is not to be free of sin. My goal is not to be pure. Those are certainly good goals, but that is not the telos. That is not the end of it. That is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that I would love God more. I want to have a pure heart because I want to love Jesus. He is my goal. My relationship with him is what I want. And I know that sin impedes that relationship and prevents that relationship. I don't want to fear him. I want to run to him. It's a love for God that motivates sanctification. There's a book by Thomas Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his ultimate point here is this. You cannot get rid of bad desires in your heart, sinful desires in your heart. The only way to get rid of them is to replace them. And the only desire strong enough to overcome your sinful desires is a, is a desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only desire that will overcome and overpower your sinful desires. If you're focusing on your goal of being righteous, you will fall back into works righteousness. Because you will begin to relate your relationship to Christ to your performance. And that is not correct. Love is the goal. And it comes from a pure heart. Not from perfect behavior. From a pure heart. My heart is still filled with sinful thoughts and desires, so how can I have a pure heart? Well, the same way you had a heart filled with love after your conversion. When you recognize you have a sinful desire, a sinful thought that is unloving towards God, what do you do? You run back to Christ immediately. You confess it as sinful, as being unloving towards him. You ask for forgiveness, and then you trust that you have been forgiven. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you do that with every tiny little desire that shows up in your heart that is unloving towards God. You confess it as that is a violation of the greatest commandment to love you. You know what you know will happen? Your heart will not only be purified, but then you'll start being offended by your sin because it's unloving to God. Back to 1, John, uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that is not defiled by sin. A good conscience is not one that's plagued by guilt. That's not accusing you. Like we saw in 1 John 4, when your conscience is plaguing and accusing you, you won't display the love of God. You'll be in fear of him. You'll run from him. Like Adam and Eve, when they went and tried to hide behind a tree, thinking God wouldn't see them. You don't want to be running from God. So the way you make sure that you can have love flowing through your heart is by maintaining a pure conscience. You avoid anything that would have, that would offend your conscience. Verse 71, verse 5, for the sake of time. The goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Faith here refers to a trust in God. An unhypocritical faith is a genuine, wholehearted trust in God. It's not double-minded. There's a couple things you need to think about here. First, faith is not sincere if you're intentionally running off into sin and you have a defiled conscience. You can't say, I have an unhypocritical faith while you're living with an impure heart and a defiled conscience. Those two don't go together. The conscience, when it's defiled, produces guilt. Guilt means you deserve punishment. And that produces fear and doubt. If you run off into sin and you start doubting your salvation, that's why. It's a form of fear. It's the opposite of faith. And in that sense, your faith is not sincere. It's double-minded. You profess to trust God, but yet you doubt. You profess to love Him, but yet you run off into sin. The cure here is repentance to Christ for the unloving thoughts and behavior. The second application here is a sincere faith seeks to trust God in everything. It's hard to say that you love God and that you trust God, except for this one little area over here. Yeah, God, I can trust you with my salvation. I can trust you with this, but I can't trust you with this over here. I can't trust you with tomorrow. I can't trust you with my finances. You want to know what those areas are? Just look at the things you worry about. When you say you can't trust God, you know what you're really saying? You're saying that God is not trustworthy. You're saying that what God says is not true, that he cannot be trusted. Is that loving God? when you call him a liar. Now, if this morning you're hearing this command to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you're saying, yeah, but I can't. Don't let this be a burden on you. It shouldn't be a burden. You know, Charles Spurgeon talked about the sovereignty of God, and he said the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the believer can rest his head. Because God's got all that under control, and I don't need to sit here and think about it. If I can borrow his expression, the love of God is the bed upon which you can rest your soul. God didn't love you to begin with because of your performance. Your your position in Christ, the love that he has given to you, was not based on your righteousness or your abilities. It was given to you as a gift. And that means he won't stop loving you because of your performance. Romans 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. You can rest in His love. And when you sin, when you fail, run back to Him in repentance, ask, him for, ask for forgiveness, and He will forgive you. And you will continue to enjoy the, the blessing of His love. Now, that's true for all the believers in the room. It's important that I have to say this. If you have not trusted in Christ, you need to understand something. The love of God is manifested only through Christ. You are not the recipient of divine love this morning if you are outside of Christ. If you reject Christ, the gift that God has given in love, you have rejected His love. If you want to know the love of God, the only place you are going to find it is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Christ, if you have not trusted in Him, go to Him today. Go to Him now. Beg Him to save you. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the love that You have given to us. It is a topic beyond any person's ability to explain or to describe fully and accurately, and we just ask that you would help us to set our minds on that, on the reality of your love and what you have done for us, and that you would help each of us as we go throughout this week to love you more, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.